The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now we are studying through the book of Ecclesiastes. We are about halfway through our walk through this brilliant, wise, sometimes slightly confounding book of the Bible. Now, Ecclesiastes was written by a guy that we've been calling the preacher. The preacher is the best that we can sort of interpret the word kohelet, which is the word that the book actually uses to describe the author. It means something like a preacher, someone who speaks to an assembly, who speaks to a gathering. And we're told that the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is that the preacher wants to shepherd us. And he wants to shepherd us towards finding what it is that we ought to be doing with our lives. Uh, It's one of three books that's considered... um, Uh, not three, it's one of several books that's considered wisdom literature in the Old Testament, books that are devoted to the wise life, the good life. Our passage tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12, the preacher asks this question that Rosie read just a couple of moments ago. We'll have it on the screen. What is good to do with our few days that pass like a shadow? What is good to do with our few days that pass like a like a shadow. He looks around and he thinks about human life and he thinks about how quickly it evaporates. It's like a shadow, he says. In fact, he says it's, it's a, a, a vaporous life. Our life is like mist. What, 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 what are the things that is good for us to devote ourselves to in this brief, short, misty, vaporous, shadow-like life that we've been given? Now, I want you to think about a time when you had a, I don't know, a big project at the house. Maybe you had a mountain of tools piled up somewhere in your garage and you needed to get at it, you needed to sort through it, you needed to organize the screws, you needed to put the, the sander with the, with the sanding pads, you need to go put it back in the thing, you, you, gotta, you, gotta, get, you gotta clean up the wood chips from the last time, you gotta clean up the stuff that you broke from the last project. Imagine that some kind of project, like, you, like cleaning out the basement or something like that. Or maybe think about when you, um, uh, you first moved into your house three years ago, and you had a guest bedroom that you planned to be hospitable with, but up to this point has been hospitable to the stuff that you haven't unpacked. And you, you plan, you know, this Saturday to go finally finish unpacking that stuff that's piled up in the guest room. Or maybe it's a big work project, maybe it's a big school assignment, whatever it is, you say, all right, this Saturday, I'm going to go do that thing. All right, I put it on my calendar, I've got it on my iPhone calendar, I've got it on the whiteboard dry erase calendar in our kitchen, this Saturday, I'm going to do that thing, like whatever that is for you. Then Saturday comes... And because it's Saturday, you sleep in a little bit. It's not a big deal. It's Saturday, though. You want to you sleep in a little bit. You want to kind of nurse those extra few moments that you have because you're not having to rush off to work, let's say. You want to take it slow. You want to get your coffee, make a little breakfast. Maybe you do a little omelet. Maybe you do some peppers and onions in the omelet. Maybe you do some tiny catcheries on the omelet, too. You're, it's Saturday, after all, right? You decide you're going to take it easy. Maybe you eat breakfast. You scroll on your phone for a little bit. You get on Instagram. You start looking at the reels. Before you know it, it leads you to YouTube. You start watching some YouTube videos. Scroll on your phone for a little bit. It's Saturday. You just want to take it easy. And then you realize, oh, it's 11 o'clock. That omelet only goes so far. Let's go grab some Chick-fil-A. All right, so we decide we're going to hop in the car. We're going to go grab some Chick-fil-A. The Chick-fil-A drive-thru is wrapped around the building, but somehow you still get out in seven minutes or so. You grab your Chick-fil-A. You think, while we're out, we're at Chick-fil-A, we might as well run an errand or two while we're out. So we decide we got a, a gift for a baby shower we got to go pick up, probably. You, you go to the store. You pick up that gift or 10 of those gifts, and you end up spending way more time there at the store than you thought you initially planned to. All right, so you hurry back home, and you still got that project in mind. You get back to the house, you realize, man, Wade Hampton is kind of exhausting. 
let's just press pause. Let's take a quick nap. We'll just rest for a couple of minutes. So you lay down. You take a quick nap, a little post-Chick-fil-A slumber. Uh, You take a quick nap. Turns out not to be a quick nap. You wake up. You're still groggy. It was a little bit longer than you anticipated, anticipated, so you pick up your phone, you scroll some more, you check some emails, maybe you watch a little Netflix, just to help you wake up, right, because you're still groggy from the nap, so you, you decide, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of ease back into the afternoon, still got the project, still got plenty of time, plenty of daylight left, All right? then you realize, after you do that, I'm getting pretty hungry again, and you know what, I need to return several of the things that I bought earlier, Let's just, let's go to the store and return these things. We'll grab some frozen nuggets and some frozen sweet potato fries. We're at the store. You do that. You bring it back to the house. You throw it in the oven. It takes, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. Maybe it's fish sticks if you're the Norris's. You, you, you eat it, you know, grilled cheese, whatever it is that night. You eat dinner. And then you realize, you know what? This is, this, this kind of uh, uh, fried food, it's sitting kind of heavy on my stomach. Two meals out today. Maybe we just ought to take it easy and finish that Netflix show that we were watching. So you sit down on the couch, you start watching, maybe it's another episode, maybe it's another episode, maybe you go to finish the movie, maybe you move on to the sequel, then you doze off on the couch, and then finally your wife wakes you up, you make it back to the bedroom, you go to sleep, and then you have a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. I did not even begin to flirt with that project that I said that I was going to do today. You ever been there? Have you ever had a Saturday that looks like that? You arrive at the end of the day, and you thought all of these dreams and plans for what my day was going to be have evaporated just like that. But then it's okay, because you tell yourself, next Saturday, it's going to be different, right? Now, here's what I think this question, I think that the author is presenting us, what this question is sort of inviting us to consider. How can we go about avoiding that same feeling, the feeling of having wasted our day, squandered opportunities, How can we avoid having that feeling at the end of all of our days? At the end of our lives, on our deathbeds, how can we avoid feeling as if we wasted the few short moments that were provided to us? Author Annie Dillard said, the way that we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And that's true of our moments. The way that we spend our moments is the way that we spend our hours, is the way that we spend our days, is the way that we spend our lives. What is good to do with our few days that pass like a shadow? How can we avoid that sick feeling in the pit of our stomach at the end of all of our days? To be clear, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with lazy Saturdays, just to put that caveat in place. It's probably healthy for us to have those kind of Saturdays, even Saturdays when we eat out twice, maybe even hit Chick-fil-A twice. I think that's probably appropriate every now and again, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. All I want to do is, is I want to take that example and ask, how do we avoid feeling that on our deathbeds? Now, Ecclesiastes is a book that calls us to cast our mind to the end, to the end of our lives, and sort of reverse engineer everything from there, to look at our lives and live them backwards, as one author describes it. How do I want to spend my moments, hours, and days? What is good to do with the few days that we've been given that pass like a shadow? Today, we're going to look at chapter 5, starting in verse 10, through the end of chapter 6. And what we're going to see in this passage are three grievous evils, as the preacher describes it. And then we'll get to the preacher's answer to this very question. What the preacher says is the way we ought to spend our days. He'll say exactly what he's discovered about what it's good for us to do with these few days that the Lord has given us. All right, so let's start at grievous evil number one. We're actually going to start in verse 13. Grievous evil number one. The preacher says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. 
And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. All right, so the first grievous evil he observes. He says this, think of an image of a wealthy man that accumulates a bunch of wealth. But he accumulates all of this wealth to his detriment. Then he loses all of this wealth in some kind of bad business venture. Like let's say he gets behind Elizabeth Holmes and her groundbreaking medical technology, Theranos, if you're familiar with that. Let's say he got behind Elizabeth Holmes. He gets cheated out of all of this money, and let's say the result is that he squanders all of his wealth, and he doesn't have anything to pass on to his family. He has squandered all of the things that the Lord has provided him, and he's got nothing to give to his kids. And he's got nothing to even carry to the grave, much less carry into the grave, because naked we come, naked we go. Grievous evil number one is the tragedy of a wealthy man losing his wealth, not passing it on. He dies, and he's got nothing to give his family. All right, grievous evil number two, verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. A second evil is that there's no gain from our toiling. Naked we come, naked we'll go. And on top of that, his days are spent, listen to this, Eating in darkness and much vexation, sickness, and anger. Eating in darkness and much vexation, sickness, and anger. He describes the image of a, a man who's wealthy, but he acknowledges the, the tragic just reality of life this side of a fallen world. All of the stuff that we build up for ourselves, we can't take with us. And he talks about, kind of uh, in this image here, he talks about the, the way that this man spends his time, like, striving and striving and striving and striving. He's motivated by a kind of discontent, and the way that he describes this discontent is a vexation that looks like eating in darkness that leads to sickness that leads ultimately to anger. Now, anytime we talk about money, anytime we look at the scriptures and we talk about money, uh, it's important for us to remember that the scriptures aren't just talking about money. Like, oftentimes, money is a stand-in for a variety of other things. Like we talk about money, whenever you hear a money sermon, you're like, I don't have money, I don't love money, I don't have to listen to this particular sermon. But you say I'm not curmudgeonly or scroogely, this one is not for me. I don't think that's actually the case because I think when the scriptures talk about money, talk about wealth, they're oftentimes talking about things that are the currency of this world, we might say. So it's the stuff that we live for, money obviously being one. Or maybe it's ambition or status or notoriety or esteem or being well-educated or being well-traveled or being you know, sufficiently liked on Instagram or whatever it might be. It's talking about the stuff that we live for, the stuff that we give ourselves to ultimately. And the grievous evil that the preacher observes is this. We come naked and empty-handed, and we leave naked and empty-handed. And he says that there's a life that is lived for things of this world, listen, that makes you angry, resentful, grumpy at the end of the day. Think of the image of eating a darkness with a side dish of vexation, sickness, and anger. That's a miserable picture. It's almost like a taxonomy of a tragically lived life right there, or a grievous life. Eating in darkness, which leads to vexation, sickness, and anger. I think one thing we can take away from this is that there is a discontent that makes you sick with striving and leaves you resentful. A discontent that that makes you sick with striving and leaves you resentful. Maybe that's money for you, or maybe it's crafting the perfect body, or crafting the perfect self-image, 
It's, it's uh, having the, the perfectly curated, perfectly lived life. Whatever that is for you, we have a tendency to be driven by a discontent that makes us sick with striving and it leaves us resentful. I saw a movie, it came out, gosh, in the early 2000s, and it's like, I don't know, I, I don't even know how to describe the film. It's, it's super uh, unique and really, really challenging. Uh, it's about this oil man who is basically so driven by greed, every person that he encounters, every relationship that he has, he just pulverizes. He just destroys the people that he's around. And you watch this, this as the movie progresses, this man just becomes more awful and more awful and more awful and more awful. And it's like he is hardened. In every scene, you see him harden more and harden more and harden more. And by the end of the movie, it's comical how mean and hardened he is to the world and to everyone else. He's, he's living this like luxurious, rich life as this oil baron, but he is just evil. If you've seen the film, you probably know what I'm talking about. Daniel Plainview is the name of the character. He's masterfully played by Daniel Day-Lewis. And I think about this passage, and I think about the, the image that it has here of somebody who's discontent, whose life is marked by vexation, sickness, and anger. It describes this kind of like hardening that takes place, a, a discontent that kind of leads to this bitterness and hardening. Listen to this, chapter 5, verse 10. The preacher says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Again, the Read your thing into where it says money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods in increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The preacher is literally saying, mo money, mo problems. Right here. If the halftime show last week was for you, you get that reference. <laughs> right He's literally saying, no money, no problems. Again, money is often a stand-in in the scriptures for the stuff of this world, the currency of the world that we find ourselves living for. Money, ambition, notoriety, esteem, Instagram, whatever. Being obsessed with stuff makes you more obsessed with stuff, he says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's like this infectious, cancerous cavity that develops inside of our chest that gets bigger and bigger every time we feed it. And in a shocking way, like he's done multiple times in the book, he says that the poor laborer, the, the poor at least sleep well because they don't have stuff that they have to be worried about. The rich, they're, they're up worrying about their investments, they're up worrying about their competitor, competitors, it's like somebody else is grinding, I gotta be grinding, they're worried about the competition. But the poor sleep soundly, sleep well, with no regard, no, no concern in the world. Now, obviously he's speaking rhetorically, right? He's, he's Making a point. It reminds me of a, this parable that you read in like every like entrepreneur business book. I think it was in the uh, four-hour workweek book. It's a parable of this American investor who goes to a fishing village, say Mexico. He goes to this American investor goes to this fishing village, and he sees this man who spends his days fishing. He catches enough fish for his family. Uh, then he goes home and he plays with his kids, and then he spends evenings playing guitar with his buddies. Uh, the American investor comes and says, "Like, what are you, what are you doing with your days, man? Like." You should, be, you should be like investing, you should be saving for the future, you should be uh, devoting yourself to building empires, you should build a bigger house, you should, you should want to expand bigger, more, more. Uh, the fisherman asked the man, what, what's the point of all of that? Like, why would, I, why would I want to expand and grow bigger and get money? And the American investor says, so that you can retire one day, and so that you can spend your days fishing, playing with your kids, and playing guitar with your buddies, spending your evenings, right? That's sort of the point that he's making here. 
It's like there's a, there's a kind of sickness with riches that just misses the point. And there's, and there's even kind of a, a freedom that belongs to the laborer, he says. He says something similar in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the watering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, this is a bit of a challenging section, but I think ultimately the point he's making is that there's a kind of simplicity that the poor man is forced into that's enviable, he says. Contrasted with the the, the discontent, the, the vexation, the sickness, and the resentment. Grievous evil number three. Chapter 6, verse 1. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Once again, he has an image of a rich man, someone who grows rich with wealth, stuff, honor, everything he desires, yet his life is cut short and all of his belongings go to somebody else. If you've read through the New Testament, this probably reminds you of the parable of the rich fool uh, from Luke chapter 12, where Jesus is brought a dispute between two brothers. They're arguing over an inheritance. And uh, one of the brothers comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, adjudicate, like who, who deserves the inheritance? Luke chapter 12, verse 16, Jesus tells them a parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus is describing a fool who spends his life accumulating wealth but is never able to enjoy it because he is sick with a discontent. His vexation leads to sickness, leads to anger. And here's one of the preacher's more provocative lines in verse 3, chapter 6. He says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, listen to this, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and also he has no burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the, do not all go to the one place. Now again, he's speaking provocatively and rhetorically here. This is not, it, we shouldn't build an ethic of life based off of scriptures like this. He's making the point that this child, a stillborn, finds a rest that is unknown to the person who lives life running after vapor. Even if they lived a thousand years twice over, a life that is driven by this discontent, this sickness with striving, and this life of anger and resentment, if this person were to live for 2,000 years, it would have been better had they never been born at all. I think he's saying, listen to this, this is, this is really important for us. That there is a fate worse than death. A fate worse than even non-existence. It's having a soul that is not satisfied with life's good things. It is a discontent life, sick with striving, eating in the dark, with vexation, sickness, and anger. 
So what is good to do with our few days that pass like a shadow? What ought we do? Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. Let's listen. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What is good to do with our few days that pass like a shadow? This is what the preacher says. Eating, drinking, and finding enjoyment in all of our toil for the few short moments that we have it. Learning to have a soul satisfied with life with life's good things. The way that we've said this in previous weeks is that we're to set a table in the mist and we're to enjoy the vaporous things precisely because they're vapor. And one of the things I find really freeing about Ecclesiastes is it gives us permission to be finite. It gives us permission to be vaporous. It's like, when you read Ecclesiastes, I think the first Sunday I said it feels like it breaks the rules on occasion or it feels like it doesn't quite behave. We read it and we think about other scriptures. We think about scriptures that talk about the fact that we're eternal beings. Death has lost its sting. We have a hope that goes beyond life and death. And, and yes, 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 that is, that is the Christian hope is that Jesus is gonna fix everything. He's gonna, Jesus, just as he raised from the dead, is gonna raise his people from the dead and he's gonna restore his good world. That is the Christian hope, yes. But what's helpful about Ecclesiastes is it gives us a perspective on the hevel and our experience of death and of the brevity of life. And it challenges us to live a good life in light of the fact that we will die. This doesn't conflict with eternity. He's calling us to receive the days that we have, to receive them with with gratitude and with contentment and joy. The few days that we're given, he calls us to receive those. I find this really, really compelling and really beautiful. That the preacher calls us to spend our moments eating, drinking, and enjoying our toil for the days that we have them. I try to resist always coming up here and talking about my kids. But every now and again, I just look around and I notice that it just seems like there's some days you wake up and it seems like your child grew a foot. You know? If you have kids, you can relate to that. Or maybe you remember when you were a kid and your parents said those same things. And just for whatever reason, man, this week, uh, it's just been especially pressing on me, just the, the brevity of time, you know, that I have with my children. And I think the preacher, like, what he calls us to do is, he calls us to, to look at our kids, uh, to look at people that we love, to look at our siblings, to look at our parents, to look at our neighbors, to look at people that we are in community group with, our church family, and to look at them as treasures, as gifts from above, and to receive and embrace and enjoy those people and those moments. Not filtered through an experience that we have to put on our stories so that everyone can see how cultured and exciting we are, but to look them in the eye and enjoy them. It calls us to eat and drink. It's, I remember when uh, the Markhams first came to be a part of our church, uh, Casey, some feedback she gave me on my preaching was that I talk about food a lot. And in my defense, the Bible also talks a lot about food. But, there's something really compelling to me that the scriptures actually command us to eat and enjoy food as a gift from God. To see it as sunbeams kind of coming from this uh, immense sun that we can't wrap our head around, but as sunbeams that point back to the sun, to the brightness and warmth of the sun. 
to receive barbecue and to receive bonfires and to receive board games and late nights with friends, to receive silly moments with your kids, to receive the, the, the snow or the sunshine, whatever it is, to receive these things from God and to receive them and enjoy them for those moments that we have them. The book of Ecclesiastes calls us to be present and to see everything as a gift from the hand of a good God, not from the universe in some abstract, nondescript way, but from the Father of the Lord Jesus who gives us all good things to see and enjoy and embrace those things for the few short moments that we have them. Now, I would imagine that for every soul in this room, there's something compelling to you about that as well. But there's probably two really big obstacles that stand in the way to us being able to live a life of receiving. And they are this, ingratitude and discontent. Ingratitude and discontent. Is your life marked by gratitude? Is your life marked by a reception of these things as blessings from the Lord? Or is there a kind of gnawing, vexation, and sickness of the heart that gives you a low-grade resentment towards God, towards your parents, towards others, for life not being what you thought it ought to be? Or do you receive the blessings that the Lord has given you? Do you accept your lot and rejoice in your toil? What the preacher tells us is our lot is this. This is your lot. This is, this is your lot in life. Eat, drink, and find enjoyment and toil. He even says that to, to come to the place where we can accept that lot, that itself is a gift from God. Do you receive the blessings that the Lord has given you? Do you accept your lot and rejoice in your toil? The miracle of dinner. Every, every, every night we eat dinner, it appears on our table. The miracle of food on our table. The gift of drink and merriment. The gift of work. The gift of finally getting to that thing on Saturday and getting that garage clean. The gift of being fruitful and productive as he intended us to do and be. What do we have that we deserve? We are blessed richly and abundantly from a lavish giver of a God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and generosity. So could we receive from his hand with gratitude the things that he gives us? Even the things that we don't like. Sickness. Health, or maybe even a life that we didn't want. Could we see a good God behind even that? Is your life characterized by a reception of blessing from a good God? Do, do you live a life of contentment? Is contentment something that characterizes or, or, or even sort of crosses your mind? The phrase, enough, is that something that even occurs to us when it comes to our spending and the way that we live our lives? Or are we always clamoring for more? More, more, more. Whatever that thing is, whatever, whatever that currency is for you, are you always clamoring for more? Maybe it's stuff, maybe it isn't. The thing about contentment and the thing that makes it so sneaky is it's not necessarily about minimalism or stuff per se. It's, a, it's about a heart that rests in the life that God has given you. It's about receiving life just as the Lord has tailored it for you and receiving it from the hand of a good God. One of the things I find really ironic about it, the staff has been reading this book together, and one of the things that the book talks about is simplicity, like leaving a, living a simple life and uh, living a slow-paced life and living minimally. And we, we kind of reflected on the staff and laughed a little bit about the fact that you can pretty much find that book, I don't know, those things are a dime a dozen now. Everybody's talking about living simply and living minimally these days, and probably because we need the message. But the thing that's really sneaky about that is like discontent can drive you to be minimalistic as well. That's the thing that's sneaky about the human heart. 
It's like you can, you can choose not to spend your money on stuff and trade it in for experiences that will get you status, and that's just as problematic. That's driven just as much by a sickness and a vexation and a resentment of heart. Just painted Sherwin-Williams pigeon white <laughs> at the end of the day. Is more stuff the answer for us? Do we want to spend our days clamoring for more stuff? A bigger house? Is that really the answer? Is more money the answer? Really? A better wardrobe? A better set of circumstances? A better life? More esteem? It really, is that the answer? Here, and here's a question. Was it the answer last time? When you received the things that you prayed for, was it the answer then? And how does that sort of help you head off and sort of temper your expectations for the things that you're clamoring for now? Or are we a people who can say enough? One of the hardest lessons, I think, in embracing the life that the Lord has given us. Like a dog returns to his vomit again and again, we think of stuff as the solution. A different, better situation is the thing that will fix all of this. Or is the preacher right? But that is actually a fate that's worse, worse than death. To eat in darkness, characterized by vexation, sickness, and anger. There's a Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote this book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he's got this great line in it. He says, if only I could convince people that a murmuring spirit is worse than any affliction, this book wouldn't be necessary. A murmuring spirit, discontent in other words, is worse than any affliction. Do we believe that? Can we learn to say and truly believe Paul's words from Philippians chapter 4, verse 11? Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The secret, he's figured it out. He has unlocked the secret. I figured it out, Paul says. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ strengthens us to endure. He strengthens us to have contentment and gratitude for our circumstances. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. To give thanks. That's the grand plan of redemption. God wants to get you there. Wants to get you to that place. That is God's will for your life that you would be thankful in all circumstances. In fact, twice in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, this is God's will for your life. The first time is in chapter four, verse one through three. He says, this is God's will for your life. You ready? You get holy, your sanctification. Then he says it again. This is God's will for your life, that you give thanks in all circumstances. Now, talking about gratitude and contentment, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't, don't hear what the scriptures aren't saying. I'm not saying that there's no place for lament or asking God to provide or going to our Heavenly Father to ask for good things, a new home, a spouse, children, a good job, good health. Jesus commands us to go eagerly and persistently and annoyingly to the Father asking for those things. Jesus teaches us to pray with, with eagerness and intensity in that way. But what I am saying is that a discontent life, sick with striving, which leads you to resentment, is a fate worse than death. And really, what are our options? What are, with the life that we've been given, what are our options? We can, we can be angry, bitter, resentful. 
Or we could receive it from the hand of a loving, wise, good father. What is good to do with our few days that pass like a shadow? Learning to have a soul satisfied with life's good things. Eating, drinking, finding enjoyment in all of our toil for the short few moments we have it. And friends, I look at the, I look at the faces in this room and I know, I know, as much as I can as an outsider, I know the stuff that is that's present tense afflicting this room. I know. And, it, and, I, and I feel it. And it encourages me to, to see you like sitting here and receiving these scriptures. And it encourages me to hear you say some of these things, that you are trying to trust the hand of a loving, good father right now, even in spite of the things that you are going through right now. And it encourages me. And I pray that God would, would work this in our hearts by his Holy Spirit, that we would be a people of gratitude and contentment and trust, 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 trust in our good father. I have a pastor friend who this weekend posted a reflection on Hebrews 13 on his uh, Instagram, and it was just brilliant. And I told him I was going to steal this. He, uh, it was a little Bible nugget that he uh, seen and had, had kind of discovered and wanted to share and thought was absolutely amazing. He said there's a lot of double negatives in the New Testament. In Greek, when you have a double negative, it's not like English. So if she can't not dance, that cancels each other out. Oftentimes in Greek, you'll see double negatives that are intended to really reinforce the point. And he says, as far as he knows, there's only one triple negative in the New Testament. So, I mean, we're talking like, like big time, really enforcing the negation. And it's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. You ready? It's on the screen. Author of Hebrews quoting the Great Commission. For he has said, I will never, not, never, ain't gonna, not gonna, never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not going to forsake my people, Jesus says. And then this pastor friend said, what makes that, I mean, that, that itself is just unbelievably good. Like Jesus is that near to us and that committed to his people. But he said what makes it really good is the rest of verse five, what goes before that. Listen to this. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The secret sauce to Christian contentment is Jesus and his devotion to us. Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been given an inheritance to the praise of his glory. We've been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We've been given eternity with God the Father through the blood of Jesus. We have been given all things in Christ. Will not God care for us? Surely we can trust the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. Look what he's done for us in Christ. Look what he's given us in Christ. Can we learn to be content to receive and enjoy the life that he gives us for the, for, for the few moments that we have in our vaporous, shadow-like lives to enjoy them and receive them as a gift? During this time of our gathering, I just want to encourage us to reflect. There's three questions for reflection in your bulletin that I would uh, encourage you to take a look at and, and reflect over this week. The first question is around discontentment. It's to ask and think through, how has discontentment made you sick? Where in your life have you seen that kind of gnawing, infectious, cancerous boil? How have you felt this? The second question is, what area of life do you struggle most with contentment? Is it money? Is it job? Is it life stage? Is it the dreaded when things slow down, whenever that might be? Where do you struggle with contentment? Where, where are you looking for substance in a place that it's not going to grant it? 
And then lastly, how can you express gratitude for the good things that the Lord has given you? Right now, you have endless things to thank God for. What does it look like to express thanks for them this week? What does it look like to develop a, a soul that is satisfied with life's good things? Rooted in gratitude and contentment. And the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us all good things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray that the knowledge of your nearness to us, we pray that it would satisfy our souls, that it would give us the ability to to be contented, to be filled, that it would be a cure for discontent and striving sickness. We pray, Lord Jesus, that for those things I mentioned a moment ago that are afflicting our body even now, we pray, Jesus, that your spirit would be near to them. And your scripture tells us again and again that you are near the brokenhearted and you comfort the afflicted and that your heart breaks, that you collect our tears in a bottle. I pray, Lord, that your presence would be especially near to those who are hurting. And I pray that your spirit would give us insight into those areas in which we are, areas where we possess a murmuring spirit. And I pray for a kind of alertness and attentiveness to the good things, to the simple things, to those small pleasures and those small gifts that you give us, that we would see and receive them and enjoy them, not as ends in themselves, but as snippets and signposts and, and uh, just foretastes of, of who you are and what life with you is like. Lord Jesus, you show us in your incarnation what it looks like to obey and what it lo- looks like to um, receive a cup from the Father that in your human nature you wanted something else. And I pray that that prayer, not your will, uh, not my will rather, but your will being done, I pray that that would be the prayer of every heart represented in the building tonight. I pray once again, Jesus, that you would comfort us and be near to us and that you would just instill in us a kind of, a kind of hope and a kind of love for you that's, that shores us up under the sufferings and hardships of life. We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.